Welcome, everybody, to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. We got a returning guest star, Mr. Joe Sheppy. Welcome back. Thanks, Mishka. And you are straight out of a board meeting, is that correct? I am. <laughs> so, so for the introductions for people who haven't listened to the podcast with you, Joe Sheppy, CEO of Solston. He's in New York at the moment. He just finished a very great board meeting, I assume so. And I would like to hear, what is a good board meeting, since that's something that you just did for a startup? Yeah, <laughs> such a big question to unpack. And <laughs> you know, it changes with the context of the board, where you're moving as a company. We're post-Series B now. And what was a good board meeting when you're pre-seed or seed is so different. <laughs> and once you get kind of past Series B, the dynamics really, they shift, they change. Because you go from a lot of growth stage VCs and... What happens is a lot of the times those VCs, by the time you get to Series B, they made their returns. You know, yeah. they can go back to their LPs and say, hey, look at Solston, look at where we started with them and look at them now. And even in like bad markets, like if you're a company that you're worried about getting marked down or things like that, they're still happy. And so you move into the world of, well, most of the time when people are investing in you at different stages, they're thinking of, well, if I invest five million. You know, this has to exit for at least X. So the expectations that you're managing are very important. And what I tend to do is I look at each investor that we have and what are their goals? Why are they here? What do they care about? Who are their LPs? What does good look like for them? A lot of the times we spent time having dinner the evening before. What that does is it creates a lot of casual conversation around what's actually going on with the business. What are your actual problems? And then when you get into more of the formalities of running what looks like a good board meeting, you're setting up your investors to actually be helpful. Some game companies or some companies we work with don't have effective boards. They don't have investors yeah. who can contribute or they could contribute at some point. And when you're early, like when you're still like series A and before, I think you need to be focusing on the business and you need to be helping give your investors the information that they need so that they feel good and secure so that they can effectively communicate to their LPs. I think that's number one. And investors should be doing everything they can to empower those companies to get shit done. But then what happens is once you get beyond that stage, you start to have investors that they see a lot. And so think of like, what is the information that they're uniquely poised to see? And what do they have? And so one of the questions that we ask our board, for example, like Redbird's on our board, Galaxy or their board observers, but they see a lot of game companies. Alumni Ventures sees a lot. I think they've invested in over a thousand game companies at this point. So, you know, ask them, hey, what are you seeing in 2023? What does a really good board meeting look like to you? Ask that question. It's going to be different for every single board member and say, can you get an example of what you've been seeing has been working really well? So we actually built our board deck off of what they said. Yeah. And then the ones that don't provide feedback, that also gives you insight on where they're coming from. This is like so simple, but yet people don't follow it. You have a perfect customer approach. You're trying to understand not only your VC, which is your partner, but also the partners, which is the LP. So, you know, you spend a lot of time on figuring this out. And my question kind of like from this is like, how much effect do you have on your board and how much effect? should a CEO post-Series A have effect on the board? Because essentially, you're really working with this board. Yeah, and you should find a way to get to having a functioning board. One of our board observers, who's one of the bigger funds that we have, 
they came out of this saying like, this was the best, most productive board meeting we had all year. So as a founder, you've set the railroad for how that's going to go in your seed to series A. So with Solston, we didn't take any money from any investor where I said, I can't have dinner with this person seven days in a row. That was a literal criteria. We turned down some bigger deals from investors where, yeah, the name was good. The signal was good. But I'll quote Christian Segerstrahl. He told me this <laughs> earlier in my career. And he said, kind of what it's like, Joe, is you're driving the bus. And when you're in your seed stage and there's an investor who they want to go a completely different direction than you, you're still driving the bus. And there's only one other person on that bus. And when you turn over to them and say something, they still know that you're driving the car. But then your Series A happens, your Series B happens, and all of a sudden the bus is full. And if you have a full bus with a lot of different people on that bus, and they all have different ideas of what should happen with the company, and you're driving the bus, because as the CEO and founder, you're probably uh, chairman of the board too at that point as well. So it's that person's job is to construct and make sure board meetings are run very smoothly. That, that's part of your role. So what you have to consider is, yeah, I don't think you can do that well online because you can't spark the conversations you need to have. And then being in person and making sure that you've architected that board well for your vision. And that's what's important because at different stages of the company, you might have to do different business things that drive the business forward, but that's not always what's going to get you to the vision when the vision should be a multi-billion dollar thing. Yes. If your vision isn't big enough to run things that are in double to triple digit billions, it's too small. And so that's your unique job as the CEO and the founder is to bring the company and the investors on that journey towards something that is an unimaginable outcome for everyone. And doing that, you need to make sure you have people that want to go there with you. So if you're not interviewing them early on, I think that's number one, you know, making sure that can you, could you have lunch with them? Could you have dinner with them seven days in a row? And if you can't, that person's going to be on your bus. And in two years from now, it's not going to go well. That's, I think, the pre-work that needs to be done and really taking the long-term approach. That's one thing Solston has done. And I can truly say that we do have that. You know, after the board meeting, we get together for drinks, for dinner. It's usually based on because there's a shared value, a shared vision. It's, you know, hey, we want to be outside. Like, there's not one person there who's like, oh, yeah, I want to be out. Like, those are things that I interviewed for. It's like, that's maybe a shallow example. But there's a lot of shared interests and shared crossover with our whole group. And it's, I mean, it's a very Solston approach, like as above, so below. Yeah. We help other companies understand their customer and their humans and their players in a way that, you know, at this point, nothing can get as close as what Solston does for that. You know, when we were a startup, we, you have the vision and you're like, <laughs> yeah, like there's maybe, you know, some other people who could do this way better, but you're getting there step by step. And so I think that's one. And then, you know, the second one is it goes back to uh, I had a talk with Mark Randolph, the co-founder of, of Netflix. And you know, one of the things he said to me was, you're going to hit these different stages in the company and there's going to be people that don't work. And those same people that don't work, they worked really well when you were earlier in the company. Mm -hmm. It's the same with board. It's the same with tax advisors. And it's also recognizing and having very open discussions with your board. And hey, you know, what parts do you think are going well right now? Because now what happens is they're going to see themselves as a mirror and everybody has insecurities and issues. And a lot of those are going to come up sometimes as you get to later stages, because some of those 
you know, really amazing people who helped you early on in your journey. They're like, whoa, like who's on the board now? And some of these people are very impressive, especially as you get to the bigger money. And that's okay. It's okay that, you know, you might not be able to show up the same way a certain board member, you know, used to. And then I think it's also, you know, one of the things that we tend to do is we deeply align on the topics. What are the key areas of the business that we want to go on? And we create a workshop after each section. So it's important that you're empowering those individuals who are now on your bus and hopefully have that same shared vision to workshop around those topics. And, you know, you could be in a situation in in the company where you're like, we don't have a functional board yet. We're not there. There's ways where you can drive that board to level up. So for example, Solston has a a separate advisor group that's basically C-suites at some of the biggest companies that we all know who have, they really believe in our vision. They believe in the journey and they're different functional roles. And you can bring some of these people in. That's an incredible way to give the world of all you know investors and what they do and seeing what's on the ground floor and how your customers interact with you and not always you know doing that with the best ones either you know the ones that maybe have struggled a little bit too mm-hmm. i think you know being really transparent and what we try to do is go to wherever all the worst shit is you know we want to highlight the positives and create a story and a narrative that we know we're going to achieve and what we're focusing on but at the same time, I think it's really important to not just tell a positive story. We make sure like, hey, here's this part of the company that we're really concerned with right now. And I think what you'd find is most investors want to hear that. They want to know those things. And that this goes back to trust too. And you know, it's what type of investor do you have? Like we had some pretty nice offers early on. Part of the reason why we turned some of those down is there's certain investors that will bet on a category. And they'll literally just invest in every single company that's in your category. Well, now how transparent can you be on your board? Mm -hmm. You have to really think about the level that you want to achieve or innovate. Who are those people and how transparent are you going to be? And what you don't want is this theater. You don't want to create the theater. The theater comes eventually as your company gets bigger and bigger. Series C, Series D, you still shouldn't be in the theater. And a lot of Series D and Series C founders they end up finding themselves all of a sudden in the theater because they had a down round or they had you know some different type of equity that ended up. And now all of a sudden, interests are different. And that's where you as a founder now, you're spending way more time thinking about your investors and your board than you are thinking about your company. I don't see you often, but yeah. I see you on a intervals and I talk to you on a long enough intervals so I can see the evolution of you as a person, but also, of course, as Solston as a company. And You've always been a very like deep thinker, but what I'm seeing is like the level of professionalism is like going towards an intimidating level. And I love that. It's such an evolution that you can see in a person. Of course, Bosch in the same way is like when we first met from the point of like, you know, you had a cool idea and a cool thing and it was like everything was cool and you were fired up like any startup, like any couple of, couple of dudes trying to make it to go into this like being above and beyond even the companies in your own stage where you're thinking five steps ahead, 12 steps ahead, where you're really like understanding the LPs of different VCs and thinking about rounds D, E, probably IPOs, all those things, kind of like making sure that you're not going to find trouble ahead by not thinking and not calculating your moves right now. And what I wanted to ask is like, how much time are you spending now on board meetings and board alignment? Like, let's say board alignment compared to C and A series, like how much has it escalated? One of my advisors, so 
around Series B, I went to him and I said, I think I need a coach at this point, you know, because you, the founder you are, that gets you to Series A, or if you don't raise your Series A, but the revenue that you're functionally able to do what you would need to do at that point, it's such a different professional version of yourself, the version beyond that. And I think I benefit in a couple different areas. One, when I went to this individual to say that, he goes, I'm surprised you didn't ask me. What do you mean? And a lot of this came from, I just read this book, Trillion Dollar Coach. And it's Eric Schmidt, founder of Google, talking about Bill Campbell. And Bill Campbell, you know, was Steve Jobs' coach. He was Eric's coach. He was on their boards. He was chairman of the boards at Apple, you know, these kind of groups. And one of my advisors, he's like, yeah, he's like, Bill was on my board. Like, Bill's a really good friend. So part of it is everyone thinks you can get everything from the internet, like false. A lot of what's on the internet is horrible. And you look at how ancient cultures, you know, how information worked. Well, you had to go find the guru. You had to find the wise old person. And when you found that person, they orally disseminated knowledge to you. And, and they did that through storytelling. And they did that by understanding your story and understanding their story. And so this is like a person that I've been able to go to in these sort of scenarios. And they know Solston from the very beginning all the way through now. And you know, in the very beginning, it's a very different situation. It's your board needs to basically enable you, but also know how to just get out of the way. And I know there's some investors that are probably going to listen to this and be like, oh, this guy, you know, because they probably talk to me. Many will. <laughs> and so these are his words. He goes, you know, if you look at angel to seed investors, they're some of the worst because they're the least professional and they'll sit there with founders and go dance for me. <laughs> and what's interesting about the seed stage, like if I look back to Solston, the dances each one wanted us to do was so completely different. It's like you want what you need to make yourself feel secure to make this investment based on what's there. Mm -hmm. And I asked Tuomas from InVenture, who they let mm -hmm. our seed round, they let our Series A, really believed in us. And I asked him, why'd you invest in Bastion and I? I had to think back to it. And he was like, I just believed in the two of you. And I said, well, what do you think makes a really good seed and Series A investor? And he's like, well, it's so much about the founders early, early on. It's so much about mm -hmm. that. See, a lot of investors say that. Actually, I want to quote one partner at a fund, yeah. not a small one. I don't know. I somehow mentioned you because you, you were talking about a lot of investor past. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we shouldn't have passed on them. <laughs> I was like, yep. Right now, like, I mean, we just got featured by PitchBook at a global level. Yes, I saw that. Not that these things mean a lot, but you know, and you're like, okay, fast company, top 25, you know, best to work for innovators. And another quote from a friend, his name is Naveen Jain. We were talking early on and I said, we're just not getting traction with investors. Like it's just hard. It's not happening. And he said, talk me through it, Joe. So I talked to him a little bit about what we're doing, what's happening. And he's so funny. <laughs> he turns to me and he goes, well, that's because you have a billion dollar company. And I know because I've made a billion dollar company before and, you know, the guy's the billionaire and did his thing in the nineties and the dot-com bubble. And now he has Viome, but he said, how, you know, how big your actual Tam could be is when you tell your story very early on and certain VCs, like most of them are just either going to say no or even laugh. And when you have a very small part of the market who's very intimate with that market. And they are like, this is awesome. This is something. I can't say all the names of angels who we had, but 
like we had people that I highly respect and we got them as customers and I'd get off the call and they, Hey, can I invest in this too? And the validation we had from that small percentage of people, I think that was really incredible. A lot of the seed to series A VCs that you you look at companies that raise really easily or raise quickly. That's great. And I think it's a different mindset too. It's like, well, you have to look into the actual fund and what have their exits been like in the past and what are they actually going towards? Like I knew that Solston was going to take time. So I knew that we needed to get best investors that are willing to have a really long-term approach to things. So when the seven year mark, there's a saying, you know, like when seven years comes around for that investor, their LPs start knocking on the door and saying, Hey, you know, depending on who those LPs are, but how much as above, so below, how much autonomy does that LP have within their LP base and how much do they believe in that vision and the long term? And that's, you know, you guys want to be on the same bus. I think going to series B to answer the question on time and time spent, <laughs> you, I know we're like, you should be really saying, you know, okay, series A, at that point, your advisors should be in most cases way more helpful because you're so much more focused on product and product market fit. And unless the people on your board were former founders who have built products, I'm sorry, it's like going to a dentist to get advice from, I don't know, completely different type of surgery. You need people who have been there, who have been in the trenches. But then when you get to scaling the business and growing it at scale, that's where the board that you hopefully have architected at that point is going to be really, really good because they're going to be so much closer to the market today, what's actually happening within the market, what good looks like, what good doesn't look like, because that's where a lot of product guru type ex-founders, big exit type people, when you're more at that point, a lot of times some of the stuff will say, we're like, you'll be like, yeah, that was relevant in 2009. You know, so I use this example with one of one of our advisors. He's amazing. But I went to Bastion and I'm like, the thing he just said is like, what baby boomers in America say when they're like, you know, when I was your age, I paid my way through college. And it's like, yeah, that's what being a grocer cost. You know, the world we live in today, how competitive it is. And what a lot of people don't realize, like pretty much every company competes on a global scale now, you know, used to compete within much smaller scales. There's a lot of things that you said, because I'm like, you're five steps ahead of me already. So one of the things that you said that was it Thomas from InVentures? Yeah. Yeah, where he said, like, he believed you as a team. And, you know, even the podcast on this one with A16Z and other investors, they always say that they invest into great founders. And I've never seen the sort of a thesis of what makes a great founder. <laughs> like, is it, a, is it a gut feeling or a founding team? And so everybody says it. Yeah. But what does it mean? It means it's like in games, does it mean that we worked at Blizzard or Riot? That makes us a great founders. And the other thing is like why a lot of companies pass. So, there's only two companies that I've invested into after like having a conversation with them without any like even an idea on investment, but asking like after the conversation or after using their product, it's like, can I invest? And so Solston is one of the other one of them. <laughs> awesome. The thing is like I had the same approach as any investor would be in that situation when I first met you guys at Rovio. When you came in pitching, I was like, the first thing is like you're leaning back to the previous, like, okay, they got some kind of like a user research thing. We got house full of user researchers. I don't need some silly platform to do this nonsense. It's like, I'll just ask one of the dudes or the ladies working in the research center, or, you know, we run Playtest Cloud and, and we do it. But again, like, I, I try to actively like push away my preconceptions of everything. 
and like, okay, let's just have a conversation. And then what I loved about, especially your approach is because you tell a lot of like stories from the past and the insights that you've gotten, and then you get to use the platform and giving it enough time and pushing away your preconceptions of what you think is the world and how you've used them. As you said, a baby boomer, it goes back to like five years ago. If like, this is how games are done. These are the tools that we use. We don't need anything else. Yeah, sure. But then you're stuck in, in something. So I kind of like push that away. Let's just have an open mind. Heard you guys look, <laughs> use the platform. That was like a no brainer. And it's kind of sad that I, I feel like I wouldn't blame the investors, but I think especially a lot of the pre-seed and seed investors have just so many companies pitching to them that I don't even think they have enough time to really get to know platforms when at the same time they need to understand the games they're being pitched and so forth. So kind of like platforms for them is like, oh, it's not scalable. It's not a VC case, maybe an angel investment case. That's a preconceived notion. You just push it away onto the next one. Is this one? Is what is a good team? Where'd you guys work at? Okay, this is a good team. Uh, <laughs> and, and moving on. So, yeah, I'd encourage anybody to read Unity's fundraising story from day zero to where they got <laughs> to. It's on there. You can Google it. And, yeah. you know, I was talking with David about Unity, and it's like, it's rough. It's, that's, it's a rough story. And the thing is, you know, what you hear, as a platform, and you know, we see ourselves more as an engine than a platform at this point, because it's alive, it's breathing. It's like when people use our product to its potential, it's like my mind's blown. I used to say when I was the head of UX at Big Fish Games, like sometimes you have certain games and you have these like power users and they play the game in a way that you couldn't even imagine. You developed the game, you made the game, and you're like, whoa. And most game developers are also gamers. And you know, we say our product's limited to two things your tech stack and the imagination of your team. And when you put those two things at a high level, we basically work with every big name at this point. You see some of the people that get a hold of it and they see what they can do and how you're enhancing their creativity, their imagination to do things they could never be able to do for their audience. And you're just like, holy shit, this is incredible what's happening within this game. And then you wish you could do that for every other game. But I think that imagination limitation is important. Like you said, a lot of seed and series a and pre-seed investors you have to have a vision for your group and have to, you have to have a vision for yourself if you don't have a vision for yourself as a vc you're a leaf in the wind different companies are going to blow you around in different direction and most of all trends are going to blow you around we hear this all the time we got this from alumni ventures they're like all these people are coming to them now going like you guys are way behind on ai who are your AI companies who are in there? Like, like Solston, when we were raising money and we were saying, you know, this is the machine learning, deep learning thing that we're developing. And I tried to stay away from the word AI because there still is no such thing as actual general artificial intelligence. You know, we're still using technology that was thought through 60 years ago. But at the end of the day, you know, we can do it differently now because of computing power, because of resources, um, because of data at scale. And if you look at that vision that you have to have as an individual, and this is where I think like some investors bring up things like, you know, we have a thesis or something like that. Like <laughs> one of the most popular ones, I'm not going to name names. They basically said, oh, we're just developing our thesis on that. And this is when we had changed our name to Solston because they said they're going to pass. And they said, well, we don't have a thesis for it yet. And I said, well, who are you developing the thesis off of? And they, well, this company called 12 Traits, which 
that, that was us. I'm like that's interesting. And I mean, there's in SaaS, there's been about 2,600 categories that have been created. And it's a very different type of business when you create a category versus evolving a category. Solson's creating actually multiple categories. It goes beyond games too. We're literally advancing human understanding as a fundamental science. Like if you look at our patents and what's there and going in and approaching a scientific problem, like if you compare us to Delta DNA, there's no IP that was sitting behind that when Unity acquired that. It's a platform. And this is how games and the whole industry looks at things very differently than, for example, the medical industry. Like we're going through this process right now where we have like Charité in, in Berlin as a partner, Tilting Point, Tempera University in Finland, and we're using real games to do medical work and actual look at mental health because the medical industry has a massive engagement problem and we fix the engagement problem. We know how yeah. to do that in, in our industry. And so you look at you know things like this and how the medical industry looks at patents. They're like, oh my gosh, like it's worth very different things. And as the gaming industry matures, as content becomes more and more important, as we move towards an industry that's more and more competitive, we've had the luxury of, hey, you know what? Games are popular, merge games. You know what's cool? Dragons. Let's make merge dragons. Like a lot of where like people are getting bitter now is because when you took the whole ATT thing plus the openness of the market in like the 2010s to 2018s, there was a lot of stuff that was ripe for the picking. And it was like being a good surfer. A lot of people, we were in the right place at the right time, and we were all there, and things were good. And now the rest of the world is like, ooh, like there's a lot here. And, and I think play is going to become more and more ubiquitous. That's just it. It's like right now, the companies we talk to, we're in talks with like, I don't know, maybe 20 to 30 Fortune 500s that are like, how do we integrate Solston into our reality, into our experiences for the game companies who are willing to burn down some of their old ways of thinking about reality, there are financial opportunities right now for game companies that you can't even imagine. They're so big. We're in talks with United Health right now. United Health from a revenue perspective, that's top 10 companies in the world. Literally their yearly revenue is larger than the entire revenue we produce as the entire <laughs> gaming industry. So if you look at the scale that's there, and if you look at companies like this that are going, how do we deepen our experiences? How do we relate to patients better? How do we understand people better? It's pretty cool. You know, I've been two weeks now where I don't go to work every day. I can actually think about things and have a conversations with people, not only in games industry, but in the tech in general. The intersection between apps and games is becoming a real thing. Like, of course, we see the signals of it where people who are leading Zynga and Glue have went to Match Group and they're hiring now PMs and doing this. But even talking to, like, I was talking to DoorDash, for example, and I'm like, <laughs> how detailed I can explain. Let's just put it this way. They are doing a lot of gamification things, and they were as excited as we were as product managers in 2012 about integrating small things and how those drive different conversion, how they can change human behavior, and, and just optimizing their apps in a very gamification manner. But when I say 2012, I mean like the ideas that they have and the approach that they have is 2012 approach. Yeah. They're not approaching it from the perspective where we are right now, where we're going deeper than demographics, where we're truly trying to understand 
you know, players trade. And when we're truly pushing for a social experience and creation of a community, rather than let's add a little gimmick to increase conversion by 2%, which at scale means like tens of millions. And then I can go in and hive five rest of my PMs that I'm such a smart dude because I came up with this little trick. So it's really fascinating. And it's very interesting to see this intersection becoming more visible. And the other thing that is driving it is, of course, the economy, not only the ATT, but the economy, where we can see that there's a significant drop in app purchases when it comes to games. But the drop in subscription is not as significant when we talk about the Netflixes and all the Tinders and whatnot services that people feel are much more mandatory. Because we felt before that the games are the ones that are not going to be touched by recession and they're recession-proof. Maybe, but it seems like the entertainment services that didn't exist in 2008 and 2009, those are really the recession-proof one, yeah. where the last thing is going to go is your Netflix subscription. So it's fascinating, and that's why I'm like a firm believer, and that's, you know, I told the investor as well, like, they're not moving away from games, they're expanding to all the other ones. This was just the tip of the spear, and they're going to take the whole spear, and that's where I was like, yeah, you're, you're probably right. <laughs> so... Just where this industry's at, and you look at the crossover of, you know, a lot of people in gaming, I think back to opening minds. And if you look at the data, so if a person has a master's degree, if a person has a PhD, you kind of go through that, they're more likely to be biased. That's what the data clearly shows. So actually, the more we learn and the more we're reinforced at something. So a perfect example is the way we did UA in the 2010s. I've seen people in the last two years get put into VP of marketing roles who think that they're going to still do things that way. And all of them are no longer the VPs of marketing at the game companies that we worked with. And they came in really stubborn. You know, this is how things go. And I call it kind of like the BF Skinner effect. So BF Skinner is a famous behavioral psychologist. He invented behavioral psychology, essentially. And if you look at the world of Freud and psychoanalytics, that was a huge scientific breakthrough. And he probably had to fight tooth and nail to get there, to hey, we're in the world of behavioral psychology now. Well, in the 1960s, you know, cognitive psychology really started taking off. And if you fast forward to today, we don't have behavioral psychologists. We have cognitive behavioral psychologists. And we got so good as an industry at working with behavioral data. This is really important. It's people's behaviors. Your behaviors are not your psychology. They're not your brain. They're not your personality. Those things compel behavior. They're farther upstream, and that's why when we see results, when we see efficacy in clinical studies, no one's doing behavioral psychology anymore. We're all doing cognitive behavioral psychology. But B.F. Skinner, till the day he died, no matter how many studies, how many clinical outcomes, was still like, this cognitive stuff is just bullshit. <laughs> it's only behavior. And you know, we still use like behavioral therapy. The, the one area where it's still really used is with phobias. It actually works well with that. Like you don't need to go to the cognitive stuff if you don't want to, but humans are pretty complex and our interaction of our brain and behavior, they come back and forth. You know, if you look at your brain for every about, you know, one connection going from your brain to your body, there's about seven going from your body to your brain. So feedback loop wise, your body's talking to your brain, sometimes a lot more than your brain is talking to your body. But when your brain sends information to your body, that's high powered information. That's like, these things are in communication and our behavior and our cognition go back and forth. But that individual fought so hard for behavior that later on in his life, he literally almost discredited himself. And people were like, this guy is nuts, you know, but he wasn't. He was, he paved a lot of paths and technology moves so fast and the gaming industry moves so fast. 
that there are people who are like, they just crushed it with UA in 2017. Like they were the masters of UA and just hitting dopamine every day and spending lots of cash. (laughs) And there was that era and the brain was so positively reinforced that one of the the bets that Solston made that was off, it wasn't completely off, but it was off. We developed this product called Frequency. It's an amazing product, but we said, hey, it's all gonna switch over to creative now. You know, our AI tags all the creatives. It actually predicts based on the psychology of your audience, what creatives resonate. Every time we used it with a customer, we have multiple customers that have evergreen creatives that are like, yep, it's still our best creative that came out of that. But what was not there was any sort of mass adoption because it's like that scene in Zoolander, like we're like, it's in the computer and they're like hitting the computer. They're still trying to like, oh, Apple's going to release their platform eventually. We can do it again. And we got so (laughs) comfortable with that. And the reality is, if you look at the last hundred years of advertising, like understanding your customer and creating really cool ads off of them has always worked. Like the ROI of creative is like 50% of the ROI. But I think what happens is like as an industry, we go, you know, this is how we made games. We looked at the competitor's game and hey, they're in the top 10 and let's copy features there. Well, there's a lot of reasons they're in the top 10. It's like there's a glass ceiling that's there. It's self-reinforcing. It does not mean it's the best game. You know, 100 million new people every year are playing games now. Like that's a lot of people, new people, net new. And so you go, okay, when these people go into the app store and those top 10 games are there, they don't know. There's 800,000 games, but they're going to download one of those probably. So there there is a self-fulfilling prophecy that's happening. So discoverability is a huge problem. And so people are turning to IP. You know, we work with games that use IP, for example, where we had a customer who said, hey, we know all about those players because it was an IP game that was a competitor of their bigger game. We know all about those players. And we had both game companies as customers. Yeah, this and this. And I'm like, no, that's not their audience at all. But I bet I know what you did. So talking about consumer insights and the bubbles that people live in, what they did is send out surveys to their player base and ask them, hey, do you play this competitor game? It was the IP game. Do you play that game? And they asked them a bunch of questions. And I said, well, what if I told you that 95% of this multi-million person audience now never played a game in their life before they played this IP-based game? And the only reason they installed it was because of the IP? That's it. Like, wait, what? You were literally (laughs) surveying less than 5% of the population. The companies that thought that way first, like early on, in the pandemic and early when tracking went away, they're the ones that are ahead right now. And whether they understood that they needed to work with IP or develop themselves compelling art styles and themes and IPs that were interesting, because it's either they both work, but it has to be compelling enough to you know bring a person in. And so just little ways of how do we think differently, whether it's for VCs, game developers, et cetera, how do we open our mind to what is possible. And it's a skill. It's a muscle. I think that's what's important. It's not something you can just go, I'm open-minded, no bullshit. <laughs> you have to actually practice it. You have to practice in what possible worlds. And you know, here's a list of themes of realms of possibility. And these are all the ones that I don't believe in. One of the best exercises you can do, I think as an investor, or even as a founder, I do this, is what are the things that I think are just absolutely nuts, that absolutely are impossible? I'll give you an example with Solston. One of the core theses that we have is that play is the truest expression of self. Hey, there's this 50-year-old guy. He's a pink-haired orc female character in his game. That's interesting. Why did he choose to be that when no one was looking? 
you know, there's a reason why Facebook doesn't really know much about who you are. They know what you do. They know some of your interests and things like that, but that's not who you are. But all those things change, you know, who you are, your personality, your cognition, a lot of those things are, are much more baseline. I don't wake up tomorrow and I'm all, all of a sudden not an extrovert or not an introvert. There's a stability of personality over time. And there's a reason for that. Like if I met you on the street, Mishka, and all of a sudden I'm seeing a completely different person, I have no object constancy then. Like how would a world even work if we were that permeable and that changeable? So when we go back and you look at what are the things that really stick and that really are, are kind of constant, you can start to predict downstream things. And play is just incredible for that. I used to be an adventure-based psychotherapist. I don't know if we talked about this too much. Uh, but probably on a previous podcast. <laughs> yeah, probably. But I was a clinician. I worked with people. And one of my favorite activities was this canoeing activity. You get like this couple, there's typically a husband and a wife in this sort of scenario. And you tell the husband, you're going to canoe 45 degrees to the right and then 45 degrees to the left and end up at this point over here. And then you tell the wife, you're going to go 45 degrees to the left, so opposite direction, and then 45 degrees to the right, ending up at the same point. Neither have heard me tell them this. You get in a canoe. It's the tippiest canoe that you can find. Beautiful. And you get the couple in there. They start paddling. And they're not allowed to talk verbally. They can only non-verbally communicate. The tippier the canoe, tippier the relationship usually. And what you'd have with really bad relationships a lot of time, they both end up in the water. You know, they're yelling, we were supposed to go that way. No, we were supposed to go that way. They're yelling different directions and they forget that I'm there. They forget that their therapist is just chilling in the background, watching this unfold. And what I'm getting to see is reality. I'm getting to see what they're like at home. Mm. I would never have seen that if we we're all sitting on a couch in a room doing classic cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm getting to see authentic behavior. I step in and I say, where were you both supposed to end up? And they both, you know, right there. They yell, same spot, you know, at that end there. And then they look at me, they look at each other, they're confused. And I'm like, do you ever think in your marriage, both of you have different ideas of how to get to the same spot, but if you could communicate better, it's just a straight line. Whoa. Okay. And what we just achieved in therapy would have taken days and days of cognitive behavioral therapy on a couch. I'm doing cognitive behavioral therapy in a play setting, in an adventure setting. Games, that's what we do. It's games are play with rules. That's it. You're a great game designer. You know how to put rules around play. Like I love the example of tic-tac-toe. Like tic-tac-toe, people are like, it's a stupid game. I'm like, is it? Get a good game designer on that game and you'll see things happen. So like Solston would go, hey, you want to do tic-tac-toe for people in this city? What's one of the top things we know about them? Oh, they're soccer players. Okay. They're motivated by status. All right. Well, how do you change that game now? Okay. Well, what if you put the tic-tac-toe on a wall and you have to kick the soccer ball onto the dots to actually say your X is your O's. You get an X soccer ball, you get an O soccer ball. And the people that win, the gym maybe or something, there's a big status board of yeah. status right there. Like you're making money. And that's an interesting game because now it involves skill, air. We see that play is a, such a cool, authentic predictor of personality, of who you are. And you combine that with classic psychological assessment. So you're looking at the person's baseline. What do we know? And construct validity. So we're comparing those two things. Mm -hmm. So we know we're measuring what we're intending to measure. It's part of the reason why game companies get the results they do. Our measures are just so much more accurate than anything anyone can do outside. And maybe to, to speak to that, like Matt Streit, who is, he was the director of research at Scopely. He used our product back in the day 
Matt's here now, Lisa Welch. She was the head of strategy at Activision. She's at Solston now. Like a lot of the best in the business, like Lisa and Matt were sitting next to each other. And Lisa asked Matt, could you go back to doing understanding audiences the way we used to at Activision, at Scopely? And Matt looked at her and he goes, if if I wanted to hate myself. (laughs) So back to like open-mindedness, one of the areas that is incredibly interesting in terms of human psychology and human understanding are the eyes. If you look at most biometric data, it's not very indicative of, of who we are, like your cortisol levels or your heart rate variability. A lot of these things, they change based on environment. Like I have this whoop thing here. I canned it two years ago. I stopped using it. And then I'm playing with a, a new bed setup. So I'm kind of looking at, hey, based on that, what's different? But if I look at in New York, what this says versus when I'm at home, New York's awful. <laughs> so these things are not really good predictors of, of who you are. They change a lot. My level of extroversion in New York is still the same as when I'm at home. That mm-hmm. doesn't change. But you know, you look at what Meta's doing and you know, where VR's going and eye tracking. Like when your eye makes saccades, for example, that's a good example of stress. When people are stressed out, your eye will skip more than it normally does. Makes about three saccades, I think, in about a second. So our eyes are actually moving pretty quick. We can't see it as human beings, but that's biomechanically happening in our bodies. Well, the eyes, in many ways, you know, ancient wisdom, the eyes are the windows to the soul. Our occipital lobes back here, it's about 30% of our brain. It's the biggest part of our brain that, you know, you go through sort of your optic nerve, you have your LGN, all this is connected. And if you look at what's happening in the eyes, my grandpa was an eye doctor for Mm -hmm. until he was like 88 years old. He did his whole career. And he said, Joe, like I can examine somebody's eyes and I can know so much about them just with one examination. He did this his whole life. And so two years ago, who is the BF Skinner in me going, oh, you know, yeah, play is where it's at. And I go, biometric stuff, no way. Nope. All that sleep tracking stuff, that's not going to get us any closer. But I have to look at those things and go, well, what if it does? What if it could? One of the ex-Tinder founders goes, I'm releasing a mental health app that tracks mental health through phone usage. And my preconceived things that I've learned throughout my whole career is like, no way, impossible, no way. I have to step into his shoes. And even though he wasn't a practitioner in his past, like maybe he's got something there. And I have to open my mind to that. And I have to play devil's advocate to my own self. And I think that's what makes really good investors, really good founders, and actually really good operators, really good consumer insights managers, really good CEOs of studios, founders. When you're willing to, like you just said, Mishka, you have your time to think. And I love this quote, you know, it's like, if you don't have 10 minutes to think, you need 20. I literally carve out think time for myself. My think time in the winter is when I do my Nordic skiing. Love Nordic skiing. We do our Vasalopa. We do our, all our races and stuff. And they're like, you're just skiing. I'm like, that's when my mind opens up. Yeah. That's when I can think and you got blood flow to the frontal lobe. And- <laughs> like I have the same thing. So what I used to do is like biking for me is it's kind of like skiing. It's like a relatively low technical, you know, like it's just cardio. It's, it's quite mm. simple just to, you go ahead. It doesn't require you to think too much as you're skiing or you're biking, but the thinking that happens because it's so easy and doesn't require, you're just focusing on your heart rate and everything. And Sometimes listening to a podcast, but I've noticed that now more and more, I'm not listening to anything except my own mind. 
and and just going through. And sometimes you're like, I'm going to go a little bit further. And so what I did is like when I didn't have enough time, I actually used to commute on a bike. And I noticed that in the summertime, I was just much more alert, like much more happier because I had the time to think while I was going to work and think back as I was coming back from work. And that helped me to kind of like close or open up the mind. And in the winter times, it's not like you live in Minnesota. It's the same thing as Helsinki, literally the same looking place. <laughs> yeah. So I got a bike with spikes and I just blasted it. And <laughs> once I went, I, I loved it so much, this whole thinking that I went once in a blizzard. Like, <laughs> my wife That's was amazing. Like, crazy. It took me <laughs> just listening to Goggins in the background. <laughs> I actually did. So, so before I went, because I was just going through the Goggins second book, my wife was like, I, "Were you insane? Like, it's a blizzard. You're not gonna yeah. go on your bike." I was, I was like, "Yeah, she's right." And then my mind was like, "Oh, I'm being a bitch." And then <laughs> yeah. she was right. That yeah. was stupid. <laughs> but I did go in a blizzard well, <laughs> on a bike. <laughs> I, I think it's important. Like as a founder, I think, and this is VCs too, because you need to have conviction and things for the long run and i'm like if you haven't done hard things in your life like mm -hmm. good luck yeah. you know so i skied the vasalopit and it was minus 48 fahrenheit which was minus 40 celsius and fahrenheit is the same so it was cold and no one showed up i had to sign a death waiver it's <laughs> pretty long and i remember going through that and finishing and everything after that, whether it's running a business, whether it's raising money, easy, you know, and when you've had those sort of hard experiences, I think why, it's why a lot of founders who have big exits or become successful, I'm like, oh, look, who's doing an Ironman? It's almost like they have to do hard things. But what I think it does do, like there's this, you know, there's this research showing that people who survived the Holocaust, for example, they ended up all living into their late 90s. And, you know, you can unpack what that might be, but I don't think a lot would stress you out after that. And it's not that we should be, you know, obviously, you know, creating horrors, but in our day-to-day -day life, I actually think if I was there, I'd be like, fuck yeah, Mishka, let's like go bike in that blizzard. Cause it's like, even if it's stupid and even if you're still in Helsinki, you're still in a place where you're not in wilderness. Like I'm a wilderness first responder. If we were yeah. four hours away from help. And you're like, Joe, I'm going to go off and do a little bike. To I'm like, ah, oh, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But when you have like infrastructure and things around you, like when you do Vasilopit in minus 48, there's still medics there. There's still a city that's right next to you. There's infrastructure. And it's like, that's part of what adventure therapy is about. We have a, a list of all the different adventure activities and their risk profiles. And the idea is how do you allow people to experience hard things in safe ways? And this is a lot of what really good games can do too. It activates your nervous system. So your adrenaline, your epinephrine, epinephrine is like a neural lubricant. It allows your brain to relate and move in ways that it couldn't before. So if you want to rewire your brain, think of like, you know, PTSD. There's a lot of epinephrine in that event. Bad things happen. Your brain's like wired for that moment now because that's threatening your survival. Well, you know what? It works in the opposite direction too. You want to rewire something in a positive direction and you have epinephrine in your brain. It's a much better environment. And people go, well, can't we just inject people with epinephrine while they're sitting <laughs> just down? Just take a pill. This kinesthetic metaphor, these visceral moments of place, of time, of all these things that are happening are so important for ingraining those memories, ingraining those moments with behavior. And so, you know, when someone says like, I'm going to go bike in the blizzard and I'm looking at, they're in Helsinki, they're fit, they're well geared up. You know, we have this saying in the Nordics and Minnesota, you know, no, mm. no bad weather, only bad gear. I'm looking at the risk profile. It's actually pretty low, 
but it's an incredible yeah. opportunity to do something hard where maybe there is a little bit of adrenaline and it's a brilliant moment to, if you want to change how you think, that's the moment that you're going to change how you think. Yeah. And, and when you have the right mindset, even like, again, like, as you said, there's nothing to it. It was a blizzard. All right. I was the only one outside. But, <laughs> and then your mind is saying like, you know, the bike doesn't move very well in a yeah. blizzard. And you're like, how come it's taking so long? Same path I've gone through three years now. Yeah. Bro. And then you want to quit. And then because of, you know, the David Gogginses that I was yep. listening, I was like, great. I got the uh, quit sound in my head. Now I need to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so, so it was kind of like great to get that. Cause you don't like, oftentimes you like, we don't get the quit sound. It has to be really hard before your mind is like, what are you doing? Like, let's just, let's leave the bike here. Let's take a bus. Like, what are we going? Yeah. You, know, you look at like, you're setting up your founder base. You're thinking way ahead of time. And back in the day when we were working with Scopely, Henry Lowenfels. Shout out to Henry. Henry's <laughs> amazing. I didn't know the guy, but I walk in the room and Henry's like, are you a wrestler? And said, yeah, because Henry wrestled in university. And then he's like, but you look like a skier too. Are you from Minnesota? Because he's starting to connect, connecting <laughs> dots. And he mentioned a family name. And I'm like, yeah, my dad mentors their son. And he goes, oh, that's my cousin. So it was like, this is this happens all within like 30 seconds. Never met Henry before. But <laughs> we, we have talked about wrestling. I started doing when I was five years old. It's a thing where, you know, pushing your mental limit Every time you have a match, you're at your mental limit because it's two people physically trying their hardest at their ability and skill level to overcome another human. You're submitting that person. And yeah. it's different than like jujitsu, or I did quite a bit of jujitsu when I was in university, where it's like somebody can be very technically skilled and then you go roll again and then you got them. Mm -hmm. And it's almost more like a little bit of a repartee that happens. We're like in wrestling when someone pins you. They just submitted you and you're doing everything you can to make that not happen. And the best thing about the grappling is like you can go 100% because you're not hitting anybody. So that allows you to give you everything. And then when somebody submits you and let's say oh, technically you're on the same level every time, like people are so nice and they're so respectful towards each other after those. And like, it's like, it's so primal and so real and there's nothing to it. It's just like same weight, same experience level and you just go 100% at each other. So it's uh There's research out there that shows that young children who engage in rough and tumble play mm -hmm. more than ones that do not, less likely to be incarcerated as adults, less likely to be aggressive, less likely to have amygdala yeah. activation. And if you translate that to like first person shooter games, like we see a lot of the back end data and people like this is a popular ask like Joe, but aren't violent video games bad for people? No, it's actually the opposite. Like, especially young men who play more violent video games actually tend to, if we look at like traits like altruism, for example, or we look at traits like empathy within our dashboard tools, like you can see those, some of those traits, especially in young men getting developed. And what happens if you think of like the world, if you've never experienced rough and tumble play or aggression or things like that, you look at an animal who's been startled or surprised. Fear is the scariest thing. The, the scariest person is an afraid person who doesn't really know what violence is or, and, and it's not saying to be violent, but it's like games actually act as a fake simulator in many ways for those sort of things to come out. You look at Mike Tyson today, the guy's the calmest person in the room. There's no one that's probably that threatening to him. So his threat response threshold is so high for that guy to have a threat response because of who he is and what he's been through. Where for people, if you've never experienced 
hard things, if you never experienced rough and tumble play as a kid and somebody like nudges you, you might have a threat response, a person might have a threat response to that. And so, I mean, the only thing with violent video games in the bodies of research that I've gone through is there was a study where they had kids with first person shooter games shoot compared to police officers and they did more accurately shoot than the police officers that were a part of art of the study. So yes, games do train cognitive things. They train physiological things. They train behavioral things like games are powerful. Play is a powerful teacher. But if you look at a lot of the, the people that go out and do crazy stuff, it's like they probably could have been very benefited by rough and tumble play or, you know, playing some games that, you know, might be a little bit more aggressive or things like that. So like it's, hockey it's, <laughs> or play hockey. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity game framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at HeroicLabs.com. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games, supercharging the gaming landscape. Not switch gears, but talk a little bit about something that you mentioned like briefly, which the reward that you got as top 100 place to work for. Yeah. So it's, it's fast company. It's the top hundred places to work for as an innovator. Yeah, exactly. So that's a really impressive. And well, I wanted to ask kind of like a question for the few thousand people who have listened to us talk over the years, but like, can you walk me through just what's the path has been from 12 trades to Solston? And how did you achieve that? It comes back to the very, very beginning. One of your jobs as a founder, and whether you're, you stay the CEO or not, that's fine. But setting down really and really deeply thinking about your values and the values of your company. And there needs to be a Venn diagram of the two. Your values should not be your company's values, but... There needs to be a crossover between those. So one of the things, exercises that I often do, and I have, I have team leads do this because it's not just about the culture that is a company. Every single team within your company, as you grow, should have its own brand, feel, and culture. Like 
what does it mean to be at Solston Engineering? What does it mean to be at Solston Design? Like there should be visceral feelings that you get when you hear Solston Design. There should be visceral feelings. I know most people who are hearing this don't have that visceral feeling yet, but we have to think that way. What are we creating? So what I'll tell employees to do is so on a personal level, think about the five most impactful happy events in your life and write down the three values that were present during those moments. Now circle the ones that were most in common across like the top five events. Those are values that are very important to you. Now look at the top two to three most unpleasant worst moments in your life and write down the things that came up for you, you know, whether it was neglect or there was violence or whatever they were. Now inverse that. What's the opposite of that? Those are values that are also really important to you because, you know, there's this kind of hedonic version of happiness, which is pleasure minus pain equals happiness. For a lot of people, because most people are hedonic, most people aren't Buddhists in a tower. And so we have to look at forming that as a company, as a breathing organism. And when you're a startup, you're like a five-year-old. And then we're series B, we're maybe a teenager. Our level of self-awareness of who we are is reflective of the environment we're in, the people around us. So I have individuals that do this, and then we do this as a team. And we use the same value assessment we use for players at Solston. It's literally the top values that we've statistically seen show up over and over again that are generalizable. Like you might have a unique value to you, and that's okay, that's cool. But it's generally, it might not be relatable to the rest of the world. Like if we looked at Goggins values, they're probably pretty unique. And that should be the case for you, like develop you. But we do this with the company and we say, you know, what are the top three moments you've had at Solston? What are the top three worst moments you've had at Solston? And let's get those values out there. So I want to know that as a company, what our values are and where we're at. And I want to know that as individuals in terms of their, the leads, the different team leads, because I want to say, what are the values that are needed to be really good at Solston engineering, really good at Solston design. And those two, they should have some unique values. If I'm really seeing the managers really think through this stuff, and then we're coming together as a company and saying what that is. Well, we've done that over the last five years, and it has changed. The environment changes, the people change, where you're located can change and grow and shift. And it needs to be a conversation between you as a founder and your vision, because you're going to understand values that are going to allow you to get to your vision that the team is not supposed to know. And what I mean by that is they don't know because they're not you. If they were you, they would be your competitor. They would be out pursuing the same exact vision in your position. And sometimes that does happen. And the different values can get to different outcomes for the vision. Like I'm sure Lyft and Uber have very different values, but they both achieve different outcomes within that same vision space. So it happens like once a year that we do this. And we reevaluate it and we refine it. And what's cool about it too is if you do it early, you'll see themes. You're like, wow, this one's been there five years in a row. Then you start to understand what core values are to achieve the vision you need to achieve. Well, what does this help with? This helps with hiring. This helps with firing. Right now, if you look at most companies, about 20 to 30% of the staff are getting cut. Twitter is 80%. Yeah. So, and this is startups included. And, and there's a lot of investors going out there with, companies that are not doing this and saying, why are you different? Why is, you know, cause you got to have a really good growth reason to be different. So that values part is so important because what that does is we've had some scenarios, for example, where you're going to miss hire. You're going to fundamentally miss hire. Like I talked to the woman who ran 
a lot of the HR efforts for when Microsoft scaled from one to 40,000 people. And what she told me was their best hiring managers, like the top 25% of hiring managers, about 60% of their hires ended up not being successful at Microsoft. So look at the stats. Hiring is hard. And so how do you mitigate that? Well, one of the things you can do is really focus on values. And you know what? You're going to mishire sometimes and realize you are missing a value because there's an incredible amount of people out there. One of my human factors professors at the University of Wisconsin, amazing, amazing person, but he'd been in human factors all the way back through World War II. Like he did submarines and looked at like different military equipment and, and all this stuff. But he said, one of the things you realize spending your whole career in human factors is that the dumbest people on earth will mess things up in the most brilliant ways that the smartest people you've ever met in your life will never even think about. There's a quote from an engineer who does trash cans at, at Yosemite. And he said, if you actually do a Venn diagram of the dumbest people that visit the park versus the smartest bears, there's a crossover in difficulty of opening up trash can that's actually very difficult to solve. So you're never going to count for anything. Be easy on yourself. That's one of the things that we do is focus on our values and seeing them as a living, breathing organism. Okay, let me just take a step back. The way we formed this hiring issue, which is the most dangerous thing for a startup, for scale-ups as well, is the, uh, the mishires. Not only is it that you're spending a lot of direct resources on hiring somebody, or we might be paying recruiter, paying the person who's joining, but also there's a lot of indirect with the whole team going through the interviews process. Then that that person join, you're going to spend time on onboarding. There's directed costs with the ITs, but there's indirect cost as you're integrating this person. If that doesn't work, then you have to go all the way back and advertise the position again and get again the recruiters involved and again doing everything. And if there has been a really bad, like a misfit or you know, the separation. Sometimes the separation is very nice where both parties say like, actually, this wasn't the type of a job that I wanted. Yeah, actually, you don't really fit. And we just shake hands and say like, all the best to you. It was great that we gave it a try, maybe sometimes in the future. That can happen. But it can happen also that that it's such a poor cultural fit that there's going to be problems inside the company. And those are, again, intangible damage that is being done. So there's a lot of direct, indirect cultural damage that can be happening through wrong hires. And that's why it's imperative to, to get your hiring process right. So I'm kind of leading to a point. What we did is, of course, we had values. That's an important part, and they were evolving them. But we didn't use company values for hiring that much. The company values was more like, how do we work? Like, what are the guardrails to get to the mission of the company? But what we used in hiring, and what I especially like really started going into, is virtues. You're getting a certain type of people that share the same type of a virtues. And I wrote down, kind of like clearly explained different virtues that I were going against. And my interviews, which was always the last one as the CEO interview, was purely focused on the virtues. And it was kind of fun because people didn't expect that I would be asking them type of a question. And I had a list that, you know, I've just opened up here. It's like, I would talk to them like very simple things. I would be asking them about like, hey, like talk to me about the biggest accomplishments in your career. And I'm not looking for them to tell me about something magical that they accomplished. That's nice. And I have like notes for myself. What am I looking for? How many times the person says we versus I? Because I'm looking for a virtue that is called humility. We don't want people that are too arrogant where they don't want to listen to others, but we also don't want people who are very meek where they're afraid to bring on their opinion. I'll be talking about them. How did you handle your failure of that learning? And there were things where I was kind of probing of like, for example, how well 
do they understand themselves? What are the greatest weaknesses? Or what would somebody else say about you? So I had like multiple different questions that I would pick up from those categories. And then we focused on virtue. So my question for you is, is virtues and values, are those two different things? Or are you hiring against company values? Like, how do you approach that? Yeah, part of why hiring is so hard. So I heard this from a general partner at a big fund. And he said, you know, founders need to be doing interviews all the way up till you're about 300 people. It's like, your team's going to not like that, but it's important. Here's the reality. And here's part of why Solston exists. Because, I mean, we are fundamentally exploring and understanding what human nature is. And we already are scientifically way beyond any medical or university system in terms of what we do at Solston. And so part of the problem with founders doing that, people like, I do this too, because it's one more data point. But A, people are poor observers of their own cognition. B, we are poor observers of other people's cognition, especially in Zoom settings. And C, impression management is never at an all-time high than in an interview process. So if you look at back to clinical psychology, people like who are cluster Bs, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, these individuals, they're the first to call another person a narcissist or thing like that. They're big projectors. But we can know people in the media who talk like this and, and act like this. But they are some of the best people at interviewing. And so when I ask a question, like I'm looking for humility as a virtue, virtues are much more evolved values. They're values with a vision is how I like to think of virtuous. And so most people, if you interview for virtues, most people don't have virtues. Values are one of those things that are interesting psychologically because they are not pre-installed. So your personality, there's many aspects of your personality, like your nose, you have grandpa's nose, you know, you have grandpa's eyes or grandma's eyes, like there's aspects of your personality that are pre-packaged, pre-installed. And a lot of who we become as an adult is how we choose how to express our cool amalgamation of traits. You're really the shepherd of your genetics. You're not your mom. You're not your dad. If you actually look at your genes, you're your great grandpa. You're all these things together. And your job is to shepherd that. And your job is it's the classic story of like the one son was an alcoholic. The one son never drank. And both of them were asked why. And both of them said, because dad was an alcoholic, you know, it's mm. two different outcomes, maybe the same behavior, maybe the same personality traits, but different choices in terms of expression. And this is like the humanity of a company. We did a really good job of this in our first 15 hires. So I sent out psychological assessments and I looked at assessment data. A lot of what Solston does is you know, you say, oh, we're going to develop a survey. We're going to develop a questionnaire, you know, a question like, hey, tell me about your past achievements. And you could do that in a questionnaire and have people write that out. And then you could use a NLP model to just look at, you know, things like we or this or that. And you could actually use that model to track against employee success KPIs that you track internally too. So you could fundamentally over time create an actual model that could help predict that just based on that question, you could get a score from that. The problem is a lot of survey questions or interview questions are not assessing. So a good example is like, if I ask you, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how happy are, are you as a person? You know, I'm like an eight maybe, or seven. Well, <laughs> depends on the day. <laughs> it depends on the day. So A, that question has really bad reliability. So we're going to get different answers every single day. But actually, if we look at the construct that question measures, and I've looked at the construct that question measures, it doesn't measure happiness at all not even a little bit. It does slightly measure indulgence, slightly above a flip of a coin. People that are more indulgent tend to be more likely to say 
they're happier on mm. most days, but there's way better assessment questions for measuring indulgence. So you need to work with a company like Solston because of what we do at Solston and because we're measuring what it means to be human and we're measuring that at scale at high levels of accuracy we're able to actually see some of those things. So I, we did a really good job of that in the first 15 employees. Then we started to scale. And this is where I'm not scalable because I was the one person who could deploy these assessments and read them and go, oh, we need our own internal one that just scores all this stuff. That's where I was mentioning like a model. And then you have the right assessment question. So what is the right question that assesses that? Well, you need to hire a psychometrician who can look at things like construct validity, reliability, all this kind of stuff. And so as founders, sometimes we ask questions like that. And actually, maybe we're measuring impression management because people can manage their impression on an interview. They can't manage their impression over time playing a game. It's the same reason like borderlines, narcissists, mm. people will get in relationships with them. They're like, the first three months were amazing. It was so good. And then fourth month, fifth month, you can't keep up a show forever. And that's back to why games, you know, so one of the things we would love to do in the future is actually partner with some of our customers and use their games as hiring apps because the masks go away. Like who you choose to be when you play is very different. Now, once the person knows that it's being used for a hiring scenario, they'll yeah, of course. try to modulate behavior. But I'll give you an example. Like we used to work with one of the major league baseball teams at my office when I was doing neuropsych assessments and pitchers in the major leagues, if they want to get Adderall, they have to do neuropsych assessment. It's a performance enhancing drug, helps them focus. So there's a lot of pitchers that want to get Adderall. Makes sense. Of I course. think I might have ADHD. You know, there's a lot of people that might think that, well, you need to get an assessment. They'd come in and they'd literally try to trick what's there. And the thing is the way really good clinical grade assessments are built, there's no human being who can get through that in a biased way. And a lot of the questions that are asked, a lot of the items that actually measure certain things, they have no idea. And so you got into that a little bit. Like, you're not just asking the person, like, would you consider yourself to have humility or not? Like, nah. you're a layer below that, which is a much better question to look for we versus I. Like, and we have instincts around those things. But at the same time, if they're smart and they're especially conniving, they also know what's behind that. And then they can modulate behavior. And then that goes back to the Microsoft data on the best hiring managers who asked the best types of questions still ended up making 60% of hires that yeah. are like, what the heck? So if we look at who humanity was pre 10 commandments, thou shall not kill. That <laughs> literally had to be said. Why did it have yeah. to be said? Because people thought that was okay back then. Like if you think <laughs> we're not living in a better world today, like read history. So now we live in a better world. We need new values for the world we live in today. And virtues, virtues are, are awesome, but you know, we hear about virtue signaling and things like that. Yeah. And I think with virtues, because virtues need a vision, you need a vision for the virtue. And so values, you know, if you look at values and principles, like for you as a person, you should seek a life of virtue. I mean, that's very Marcus Aurelius. And he would add to that in accordance with nature, you know, the Stoics. But if you look at first, you need values to kind of get to principles. So you don't start with values as a baseline, you're going to have a really hard time with principles. And once you get those principles, like I mentioned earlier, these are the values that we continue to see show up after the past five years, even as the economy changes, even as the market changes, even as Solston changes. What are those example values that you have? Yeah. You know, one of them is humility and humility tied to work ethic. One of our early ones was humble and hungry. But we changed that one as we started to scale. The humble part stayed, the hungry part fell away a little bit more because sometimes you need people as you scale and as you grow who 
they're just really good, solid bedrocks, especially the more scientific problem you're solving. You need rock stars and there's a transition to bedrocks. And I agree, like, like, and the reason for startups to, for going for hungry and hungry mean like a person has a work ethic. And a lot of my questions were really about the past of the person I'm looking for. Like, were you doing some sports and you just trying to become better at something you're not, you know, incentivized, for example, financially, whether that was sports, whether that's programming. Like we had people who were just, you know, talk to me, how you got into this? And I'm like, well, I'm self-taught artist. And I know that they passed already the test. And to me, that shows that they're hungry. They're willing to push and learn a new craft that arguably is totally as good as anybody's because they passed the other the test phase so that's an important but you you said the right thing is like in the beginning hunger is important because you're looking for anybody who joins a startup phase or that early phase like 30 people less maybe even 50 people less that yep. wear multiple hats to have a strong work ethic and as you scale you need people who are mentoring who have been hungry before their lives have changed they're now more getting their fulfillment for helping others that's not the most hungriest thing where you're becoming the best, but yeah. you need those as you scale. Exactly. And what I would say is, because like what a lot of people want when they listen to podcasts like this, like, well, what's a nugget that I can take and apply to my company? <laughs> and every culture, like we have about 25 different nationalities represented at Solston. So you have a lot of different cultures, a lot of different means of communication. One of our ML people and one of our engineers, the three of us talking about this, they got off the same call. They all said the exact same things. They all agreed on the same things, then they went off into different things. Language is so limited, especially when the language that you're speaking in business might be your second language, which mm-hmm. is largely the case. But if you look at like what are the values that, you know, for example, Solston values and look at Solston engineering, one of the values that has stayed true, because we actually measure the people that end up leaving or having to be let go and the people that end up staying and thriving. We measure values of the individuals too, and we see which ones are present within different groups straightforwardness is consistently high on our engineering team as people that thrive here. So if I see someone with low levels of straightforwardness going through the hiring process, you're not going to be happy at, at Solston. And, and having low levels of straightforwardness is not a bad thing. There's actually yeah. companies out there where that personality trait is probably very good for that person. And they're going to be much happier there. So we're also saving them from that. But as a startup, you're learning about yourself. So these things are not always like obvious. But other parts of Solston straightforwardness is not as important as it is at Solston Engineering. So in an interview process, if I'm interviewing the person for it and they listen to this podcast, they go, oh yeah, I'm going to be much more straightforward. (laughs) There's an automaticness to somebody who has that as a trait that's very different. And if we're looking at assessment, I've assessed so many people in my career that I am a poor observer of human cognition and all humans are poor observers of human cognition. And because I know that about myself, I am a better observer of human cognition than most people because I've done it as a career, but I also know my faults and flaws and limitations as a human being. And so my default is to go to, well, let's look at the adaptive assessment, that stuff that we have. Let's look at their straightforwardness there. And what I usually do, I interview and I look at those traits and I see where was I versus where was the assessment. And if I'm far apart from the assessment, I might know then the questions I was asking was flawed. I might know then that person's really good at impression management. I was tricked. And I always say this to people like when I first became a a therapist, my mentor, she asked me, what's one of the populations that you're not interested in seeing at all? And I said, addicts, like drug addicts. My next day, every patient was a a drug addict. (laughs) And I saw a lot of heroin addicts, you know, people that were going through their journey 
on drugs like Suboxone and Subutex, trying to, you know, wean off these sort of opiates. And if you think you're good at lying, you've never met an addict. They are some of the, (laughs) the best of the best. So I do have that lie detector after seeing that. And so I can see impression management, but I also have to know that I can be tricked too. I think people put too much confidence sometimes on their selves and their own questioning and like ask yourself, Hey, as a hiring manager, as a CEO, as a founder, if one person here can tell me every hire they made was great. Well, you should be talking, not me. You should be here. It's so we need these kind of different views of measurement and then doing things within your company that reinforce those values. So like, for example, top performers at Solstice, like one of the values that we have is experiences. You know, that might sound like that's not a normal value to have, but we help companies create the next level of experiences. We help companies exceed their experiential expectations of their customers, go way beyond what you actually know and where you need to go. And as an innovator, that's part of your job actually is understand where is the market going and meet them there. Not where is the market and create what's already been made for them, which a lot of game developers go, ooh, they have good features, they're working. No, you're creating what's already in the market. You need to meet them where they're going. That's your job. So at Solston, we go, hey, here's the values of your audience. Here's the personality of your audience. What could we make for them that's going to meet those that no one else is doing? And that's how Solston's helped create some of these like games that go out and like, hey, we launched in two weeks. We already have 20 million daily active users. It's like, yeah, they met the experiential expectations or exceeded them that no one else was meeting. That's why people went over there. And so mm. we look at employees the, the same way and say, well, what are the values that are there? And what activities can we kind of bring together? So like top performers at Solston, because one of the things that we wanted to architect the company around was a performance culture. And that's not good for every company, but it is good for Solston. If you look at what we're trying to achieve scientific feats, like a lot of game companies can work off of flat cultures. If they have the right country dynamics and the right cultural dynamics that are in the company, they can work off of that because it's such a creative process where when you have a really rigorous scientific process that you need to drive forward, hey, we're not, like Bash and I will say to the team, like, this is the NHL, this is the show, we're in the big leagues, and it's okay if you have to go to some farm league or something like that. Well, if you come back a year from now and you re-interview and you're amazing, we'll take you back in a second. It's a lot of times it has nothing to do with the person when we need to move on from a person. The majority of the time, it's like they weren't that best person. Like if you're sitting there going, Hey, you know, you're Henry Ford and you're like, I got it. We have to build a combustion engine. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you guys got six months. And every engineer is like, that's impossible. Like we have to face those sort of problems at Solston. And then what is the psychology of somebody who thrives and loves that type of environment? It's so different. Hey, game devs. Are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone carrier bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and iPhones, 
iframes, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fun really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing the full-on deconstructing first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. That's a fascinating point that you're putting in is performance culture. So I had a, like people who are listening to this, most likely listened to the previous podcast that launched before this was with Joseph Kim and him being very much building a performance culture at Leela Games and getting tremendous amount of pushback for building the type of a culture. So people are saying like, like you're doing it the wrong way because mm. you're expecting people to have like work-life balance is really important. These soft values are really important. And he's not saying that they're not. He's just saying like, that is 100% correct for your company, whatever corporation that is scaled up or another startup. But for my company, performance is above everything. And we're here to work hard. And we're here to achieve something that others haven't done before. Totally. And we expect that type of a thing. And fascinating conversation there was that he was getting from outside and very aggressive pushback from other people from other companies that were reading his decks or listening to his interviews and saying that he's running the company in the wrong way. That's the same thing as, you know, some obese person sitting on the couch yelling at the footballer that, oh man, like, I can't believe he missed that kick. Like yeah. people who are, I mean, we have the saying in anthropology, like armchair anthropologists, it's like, at the end of the day, like it's your company. And that goes back to what we first talked about with investors. And there's no forced labor. It's a job. You can be here or you can not. Like what kind of environment do you want to be at? And you can choose between companies. Yeah, I think that's where things have been so employee friendly for a really long time. I've been laid off before. Shit happens. And you know, I think what happened was this world of Google and Facebook and not working and that's people's first job and that's all of a sudden their expectations. What happened was a lot of the environments people ended up early on in their careers, I think over the past five years or so. And so at the end of the day, it's like, hey, if you're Wayne Gretzky, if you're Jerry Rice, if, if you're at that level, I mean, let's just face this reality. If you look at raising a seed round, just raising a seed round, out of all the companies that get started in a year, 0.5% raise a seed round. Like you're already, at, you, you did something. Sure, there's people that 
you know, daddy is this, or the connections are there. But most of those founders, and I forget what the actual statistic is, but it's the majority of those people, I do know this, are first-time founders. And if you look at the data, you already just achieved getting hit by lightning, basically. And then go to Series A. That's like about, I think it's something like 25 to 50%, depending on the year that you look at, of those seed rounds go to Series A. So you're looking at another class of just slaughter. And then you go to Series B, and it's like only about 50% of Series A companies actually make it to that stage. And so statistically speaking, and this is one of the things where founders have to get careful, because you can actually have interesting positive biases now at that point, because you made it through the eye of a needle. If you've gotten to a Series B stage, are more likely in life to have been hit by lightning. But we know that's not actually true. We know that you knew something that other people didn't know. You saw something that other people didn't see. And you're steering a ship towards a reality that doesn't exist yet. And you know, above all else, what type of crew you need on that journey. Like in the 1800s, and you're like, hey, I'm going to sail across the ocean. No one was going to the Commodores or the captains of the ship going like, you need more of these types of people for this type of voyage. And if you talk to those people back then where it was life and death. And so what I often say, like my human factors, back to Michael Smith again, professor, he said, when you think of UX, because when they did like interfaces for submarines in World War II, think of it in terms of life and death sometimes. If the problem that you're solving has high impact on the product and it's likely to be irreversible, like if we draw a chart here and it's in that upper right-hand corner of high impact, irreversible, Think of that as if the person clicks the wrong button, they'll die. I know that's it's an extreme way of thinking. Some people on the UX team are watching this. They're going to be laughing because it totally changes the way you think about UX, though, because you're like, I'm like, hey, would you still be making that change to the product? If that, yeah, I need to do some research now. I need to. It's like, yeah. And so if you think of your team and your company and you're making a lot of these like really hard decisions on like, is this decision re- reversible or not? And is it how high impact it is? So what we'll do, for example, like as a startup, you're not always in an advantageous position. You can't compete on capital with the big guys. You just can't. You can compete on equity, but Mm. that's part of why I think early on you need people that are really hungry and people that understand equity. Like we hired employees that are like, I don't want salary. I want equity because I believe in Solston so much. I'm like, hello, perfect employee, you know? And actually some of those employees, because we have had some financial outcomes so far, we let some people take a little bit out. The first thing they come back and it's like, how do I get more equity? They're like, I just made more than I would have made in my entire career. There's incredible outcomes that can happen. Yeah. And having good investors that allow you to take secondaries, which allow you to have the comfort to continue pushing the pedal. Yep. I've had the Israeli Gigi Levi's, like he said, like that was the key for the Israeli companies not to sell so early is by allowing them to take secondaries. And lo and behold, they have multiple multi-billion dollar corporations just filled. There are investors that, especially seed in series A, that don't like their founders taking secondaries or like bigger secondaries. And so that's where you have misaligned values. And Mm -hmm. you see more of the later stage, the strategics that are series B and beyond. That's just common sense to them. We were actually approached and said, hey, we think you guys need to do this. You know, It was an open part of the conversation. But if we wouldn't have picked things based on values and things from the start, I don't think we'd have got there. But if you look at you know, the, the Joseph Kim example, because at the end of the day, he knows where the ship needs to go. And so when we talk about early stage VCs and going, you know, 
it was the right founder. But there was a study done on the psychology of founders and founders that actually went on to create multi-billion dollar companies. And there's only one trait that they had in common. And it was basically um, a lack of care for what other people think. And it's important to not mistake that with empathy or altruism. You can be altruistic, you can be empathetic, but being able to not care what the opinions of others are, take them into account. Absolutely. Like, do not be narcissistic. Like every negative thing that is said about Solston, I read through it. I actually have two psychologists that if something negative is said about Solston or myself or my founder, we all review it together. And I'm a part of that equation. I'm like, cool. You know, because how do I shift and evolve and, and grow if I'm not a part of that equation? But I think so it's being open to that. But at the same time, that's why I like values to principles to virtues. You should have virtues as a founder, like and as an investor too. And if you don't, you need to work on it. You need to think about it. You need to take time. And I already mentioned an exercise earlier that can get you to values. So values to principles are easy. What are the ones that have stayed consistent over time? And then principles to virtues. Well, now you need to attach a vision to your principles. And once you do that as a founder, you're unshakable. If you do that well, and if you integrate that, you are unshakable because all those people that say all those things, let's just take like a, a place where I'm really comfortable. Like I'm a wilderness first responder. I'm an adventure therapist. If somebody on the sidelines starts telling me how to help a client that has depression, I'm unshakable. One of the first things you have to do when you're in grad school as a clinician is actually perform and write out a professional identity. Like, who is that? What's the philosophical underpinnings of that identity? I encourage employees to do this. I encourage other founders to do this because they're like, what's your professional identity? What is that? And that should change as you grow. You're going to have to be a different person at different stages, but your identity in real life, that should be you. Mm -hmm. That's who you are with your family. That's who you are with your kids. But most people, we're human beings. Most people who we are around our family, that's not who you should be with your employees. We know people who like <laughs> of course their not. work personality is their home personality. Like people who are workaholics, you're friends with that person and they became a founder and you meet them like two years later and you're like, God, you're boring. They take on their work personality. Like we need to form a professional identity. And as a part of that, you need to understand what are your principles and therefore what are your virtues. If you want to know virtues, that's Marcus Aurelius, that's Epictetus, that's the Stoics. Buddha, Siddhartha talks about this kind of stuff in his own way, all the kind of ancient Hindu texts. There's a lot of stuff in there that's really valuable when it comes to virtue formation. But if you have that, you're unshakable. So the fact that you know that means he's humble enough to be open enough to communicate that he's questioned that too. Because if he's brought it up, like, I've never questioned that ever, ever, like that performance, and neither has Bastion. I'd say it's a principle. It's not a virtue for us, but it's a principle, the performance culture aspect, because you know what? There could be a reality in the future where actually that's not what Solsta needs to be. It's what we need to be right now, though. It's, it's what we have to be. And you know what's so cool is I mentioned Lisa Welch and Matt Streit, for example. Like These are people who could work anywhere, not just in the gaming industry, but kind of like anywhere. Lisa, we're, you know, we're just in New York, and she's like, this is my heart's mission. And the more I'm here, it's like, I just love it here. I just love it. That's how I know I architected the right culture for the right people. If Lisa would have came in and someone like that, who's that level of capability and that sort of powerhouse in the industry when it comes to consumer insights, and we're having some crossover, 
where things are not as, as they should be, then I might be thinking, well, do we need to tone down a certain part in that part of the company? Do we need to tune up a, a different part? It's you know, not an exact science, but if you look at like IQ, for example, or um, values or principles, if a person's deviating by about 15%, they're probably going to fail at your company. Plus or minus. So like there's some research showing that if person's IQ is 15 points higher than the average or 15 points lower than the average, they're likely to fail at your company. You know, you're never going to get someone who has 100% of your values. But if they're at 90%, we're probably going to be successful. If they're at 45%, no. Another podcast that we did, uh, this was actually with Jen, and we're talking a lot about diversity. And of course, she's coming from California, where the companies have uh, are a little bit of a very progressive and have their own approach. Nothing bad in it, just how they operate. She was saying one thing that kind of sticked into my mind, you need to treat people how they want to be treated. What Mm -hmm. do you think about that? I'll just drop the Musashi quote. Think lightly of yourself and deeply of the world. And when you look at the United States as a whole, there's a really good book out there by James Kunstler called The Geography of Nowhere. And what it's about is how the United States was architected so you could be in Florida or Washington and feel like you're in the same place. But ultimately, if you look at a culture map of the United States, there's significantly different culture zones and culture regions. I'm from Minnesota. I actually feel it the second I I pass Duluth. I'm in a Nordic culture all of a sudden. I'm not in a Germanic culture anymore. And it's a American Germanic culture that that kind of formed the lower parts of Minnesota, which is a lot of the Midwest, like the Midwestern culture. But when you get up north, it's like back in Sweden, like mm-hmm. just saw how people behave, how people act, et cetera. And so because we all speak the same language, Lisa's from California. We're actually talking about this, where a lot of Californians don't think they have accents from California. <laughs> you know, but it's a lot of when you're from New York or from California, it's very easy to have the bias that you are the center of the world. Mm-hmm. And it's like, have you been to Minneapolis before? Have you been to Berlin before? And so I've gotten that question in interviews, for example. I was just interviewed by 4X, how does Solston think about diversity? They're getting at something. It's always from a Californian most of the time. Mm-hmm. And my first question back is back to you know treating people how they want to be treated. I think there's two parts to that. One, it's understanding people first, how they view the world. And so what I'll ask, and I ask this to our employees, what does diversity mean to you? You know what's fascinating back to thinking through your values and thinking through your principles and thinking through your virtues? The majority of people who have asked me that, not all of them, but the majority of people who have asked me that question actually have never even thought about that. So what I get is 50 different answers. Mm-hmm. Diversity for me means skin color. Ethnic diversity. I'll give you an example from an interview we were running. You know, it's from California and you go, you know, what does diversity mean to you? And he said, Well, you guys don't have any. African people on your team. That was his response. He said, actually, we do. We have people that were born in Africa who are from <laughs> Africa. And he goes, well, I looked at your LinkedIn. You don't have any. And I'm, I'm like, what do you mean by that? This, we, we have this younger guy on our team is amazing. He's Tunisian, for example. Yeah, and well, that's Africa. <laughs> that is Africa. But California, <laughs> perspective, world. And he said, well, what I mean is you don't have any black people. And That's, you know, blackness versus whiteness, for example, is a very American construct. You can go to a lot of other parts of the world where that's not a construct that exists. America's, you know, 400 million people about, well, the world is 8 billion people. And we have people from 25 different countries from all over this beautiful world. And I think what's important is understanding at your company, at your team, at your place, 
what's the perspective? So if you've chosen to operate a, a remote company, one of the challenges is going to be that you're going to have a lot of different perspectives of diversity. I've gotten other people who have been like, this is seriously insane how cool Solson is when it comes to diversity. I've never worked at a company where there's this few people from so many different cultures and ethnicities mm -hmm. who speak so many different languages, which also presents a lot of challenges, by the way. Like, yes. you know, you look at Napoleon, for example, one of the reasons why he was able to win a lot of wars is he didn't work with mercenaries. He made it so that every single person in the Napoleonic army had to be fluent in French. And he himself, French was his second language. He was Corsican, he yes. was French. And part of the maneuvers that Napoleon was able to pull off on land was because like language, when we speak a certain language, there's a shared cultural meaning of what certain words mean. And so it's almost like the Tower of Babel that you have to play against too. And for us, we recognize that, you know, what types of diversity are important for your company. And as you grow, as you get bigger, you know, you're going to have to think about ESG principles. You're going to have to think about this. But I would encourage startups, when you look at your team and what you're trying to accomplish, Solston, we've always just focused on hiring the best possible person for the job to be done. And the result of that is you're often going to be subject to certain regions, certain universities. So let's take psychometrics as an example. Cambridge, Carnegie Mellon, University of Minnesota, and University of Wisconsin. There's a couple other good ones too that I'm, I'm missing out. But by and large, where you're going to get the best people, that's the schools that they went to. So you're now subject to their intake of people. Well, who are the people in the beginning who are interested in psychometrics? So now you're kind of subject to that. So from a population perspective, that's the population you're working with. And when you're building a startup, it's so hard anyway, that you need every force going in your direction. So we've actually, we've had for the last three years, ESG audits done on our company. We're slowly moving Solson towards becoming a benefits corporation, but we're not going to be a B Corp yet. We're too small still. We're too small. Patagonia just didn't say we're a B Corp. Like Mishka, you were talking about this with me with, was it Charlie Munger who said, you know, the CEO yes. at Coca-Cola? The topic that we're discussing was the role of a leader, of a CEO in the success of the company. And that was asked from Charlie Munger is like, how much do they invest into the leader of the company versus the company itself, the business itself? And he made an example of Coca-Cola CEO in the 80s being mentally challenged medically mentally challenged nevertheless the business was so strong the moats were so strong the brand was so strong the logistics like everything that coca-cola it's a logistics production company was so strong that even a poor leader wasn't able to shake the business and he was just say, making a case that we haven't as berkshire hathaway the best investment company and the best investors in the world they haven't found the secret source of putting the right leader on top of the company hence they invest into the right business so that yes. was their point so that's a perfect example. So when we talk about diversity, what's important to understand is, well, what do we mean as diversity as a culture? What does diversity also mean outside of our culture? Like we're one race, we're the human race. You look at your genes, we're all homo sapien. Neanderthal to some extent, depending yeah, on up to four percent. But if you know if something's 95% some some, more than others. <laughs> I'm one of those, I'm one of those, you know, the Nordics, we have a lot more Neanderthal genes up here. But you know, if you look at uh, our species, you know, that's what we are. And we, what we have to understand is, well, what does that mean across your realm of operation? So if you're a distributed company, you have 3000 people working around the world. I literally said this in front of our whole team in a, a Q and a, what does diversity mean to you? And we want to listen to that. We want to hear it. 
it's important that people are able to explain those things and say what they are. And then if someone asks, you know, my version of diversity says this, and we don't have this, it's important that they also understand the perspective of building a company. You know, we're, we're mostly based in Berlin still. And so you're also subject to the population you're in. Like, so if you're an American and you're like, we really want to focus on diversity and inclusion, and that's the American version of that, which means X percent of people who are ethnically African American, X percent of people that are Mesoamerican, et cetera. Well, it's less than 1% of the population in Germany that's Meso from Mexican mm-hmm. <laughs> origin or from African origins in a lot of the case. And if they are of African origin, they're usually from Northern Africa. And so you're kind of subject to the population that you're in. And what's important, I think, as a founder is being able to open up these issues and discuss them because they're important to people on the team. And if they're important to people on your team as you grow and scale, you know, understanding back to your values, you know, what's there. And what I can say is, you know, Solston, when it comes to cultural diversity and cognitive diversity, which we need because we're innovating a science, the science of human understanding. Those are things that Solsta needs as ingredients for our journey towards our vision. There's other companies where that's not maybe as, as important to them. If you come to Solsta, you're going to come to one of the most culturally diverse places. And in America, oftentimes we, we mistake ethnic diversity for cultural diversity, where you can have a whole team of Americans that are literally culturally the exact same think the same ways about the same things, don't bring different perspectives. But look totally different. Yeah, but look very different. Because America was built to be a machine, the melting pot, to become American. Like when people go to America, they're like, I'm American now. And it's one of the few countries in the world where you actually can do that. Yeah, you can become an American. You can't become German. Yeah, if you ask a German or, you know, someone grew up in Germany who's not from there, if we look at anthropology and culture, that's a whole thing to unpack. You need a panel of anthropologists to talk about it. When we come to diversity and conclusion, as you get bigger, as you become a Coca-Cola, as you become a Google, then you have a responsibility to go upstream. So for example, I do mentorship with the master's in HCI and design program at the University of Washington. It's one of the best schools out there for HCI and design. I do mentorship for a lot of the young kids that are there, also for the University of Wisconsin. Is there self-interest? Yes. These are programs that we need people from. But what I can do is I can go upstream and I can help mentor people from different backgrounds who normally would have never ended up in these sort of categories. And I can help empower that. Well, we're still a relatively small company. Well, hey, Google, hey, Coca-Cola. And they are, I think a lot of bigger companies are making big strides in this direction. But one of the challenges with employees is helping them understand not just across diversity and inclusion, but across every single ESG marker, as well as operational marker, startups are not Fortune 500s. Startups yes. are in a totally volatile environment. In the, even in the United States, like a lot of employee protection laws don't apply to businesses that are less than 15 people. You don't have the resources and things that these big companies do to have these initiatives. So what's important is, I think as a founder, if you want to actually have a big impact, on all of the different ideas of diversity. If you want to have an impact on that, the best thing you can do is become financially successful and scale your company. And to do that, that might require on focusing on one specific university. I've heard there's that Israeli military program for data scientists. That, where, where all those uh, anti-hackers or cybersecurity yep. units. I know startups in New York, in Europe, who have strictly, when they were early stage, 
only hired out of that program because the people that come out of that program tended to be <laughs> on a the best. whole other level than people that didn't. One of my really good friends, when we started the company, he had a, a master's in, in data science, a master's in mathematics from UC San Diego, really good school. He did work to build algorithms at the Salesforce Tower at Solston, unfortunately, couldn't cut it, not even close on the data science side. Great person, loved the guy, but skill-wise, as a founder, you're five steps away from failure. You're in a fragile ship. You need to build every force to go with you. And if you want to actually have an impact on some of these topics, grow and become big and be mindful of them. Like That's why we do an ESG audit. I'm aware of, of where we're at in terms of leadership, ratios, all these sort of things. And I mean, I think what maybe accounts for that. So we did an ENPS thing. We try to do it every quarter. Ours is like 77 or something like that. That's like beyond best in class. So, you know, when we develop yeah. games, someone goes in the app store and leaves a bad review. And the worst thing you can do is start changing your game based on that one bad review <laughs> or five bad reviews. And, you know, that's part of Solson. We can actually know now, like, hey, that's a part of Persona 6 in your game. They don't even spend money. They're not contributing to community. They're actually toxic to the community. Yeah. Stay in your course and focusing on what you need to do. And those values, what I love about values and psychological assessment, if you read the literature on it, it's one of the best ways to reduce cultural bias or reduce your own biases, whether you're from California or whether you're from Hong Kong or whether you're from Tunisia. We all have different biases and we're all going to bring those into our reality. And what I always emphasize is, is just communication and developing empathy as a muscle a lot of times people who talk about empathy are oftentimes the people that have the least amount of empathy who are seeking people to respond to their toxic behaviors. But empathy as a muscle is literally going, hey, I'm going to put myself in like that person's shoes because we're remote. Oh, yeah, that would be really tricky as an engineer. And when you develop those communication, what's the goal of this? And let's get to that. <laughs> You know what, Joe? We've talked about empathy as a muscle, cultural and cognitive diversity, board meetings, becoming a top place for innovators, getting tricked in an interview, getting no from investors, and finding your virtues. This has been a fantastic podcast. I know you need to go because <laughs> you haven't reserved more time, and I need to go. We could probably go for four more hours, so we need to get back to it. Like We had no plans for this podcast because we knew it's just going to be all over the place. Fantastic talking to you. Joe, Hi, what a pleasure. And I love seeing Always. you evolving. Like I can't say enough how much it's a pleasure to meet you at these three to six month intervals, talk <laughs> to you and be like, Joe is on another level again. It's, it's just a fantastic thing. So keep evolving. I'm excited to talk to you again, you know, <laughs> next three months and the next quarter, next two quarters, because you'll be different in slush, for example. Thank you so much, Joe. This was the longest podcast episode ever on Deconstructor <laughs> Fun. And for those who got through it, shout out to Joe. We didn't talk about Solson at all. Just go solson.io. It's a fantastic platform. And if you're not using it, you're just handicapped. So on that note, goodbye, everybody. See ya. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor Fund Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructorofun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.